Typically, um, a little bit into my sermon, we pause and we have a time of prayer where we ask the Lord to bless our learning. And we're going to do that uh, right up front because I also wanted to bring to your attention something that's uh, on a lot of our hearts right now. Uh, One of your elders, Sean Linder, uh, was recently diagnosed as having a mass in his colon. And so this Thursday, Sean's going to be going into surgery to have that mass removed. And so we wanted to bring that to your attention so that we can flood him with prayer and thank the Lord for the work that he's doing in Sean and his family's life. I know that they are trusting in him. Uh, they are, they're not afraid. Um, but as human beings, sometimes a little bit of that fear can creep in. So we need all the prayer we can get. So we want to lift Sean up and, uh, and thank the Lord for the work that he's going to do in, in, that, in that surgery, in that instance. So let's, um, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in reading and in study and ask that God would be with Sean, our, our brother and our elder. Almighty God, we lift you up. You are a good and holy God. You are the one that gave us these bodies and we know that through sin they have been corrupted. And so because of that, this fallen world that we live in is plagued by various afflictions. And uh, Lord, we are saddened to know that, that Sean is having to deal with that right now. And, and, and by connection to Sean and our love for him, we're dealing with it together as a church. And so I pray, God, that our hearts and minds would be fixed on you, that we would have a great confidence in your mighty hand to direct this process. Lord, we know that you are not only great if you heal Sean, you are great regardless of whether Sean is healed or not. But Father, we would really love to see him uh, healed, that he might serve you for many more years here. We're grateful, Father, for the the wonderful blessing of his family, uh, each one of his kids who puts you first and loves you, for his loving wife who's so involved, God, for Eileen, and and for her uh, great wisdom that she gives to women of our church. And so, God, we, we pray for them right now. We ask, Lord, that you would carry this burden on their behalf. We pray, Lord, that as their church, we would, um, we would be careful to not forget to lift uh, this procedure up, that we would bless um, Sean with the support that he desires right now. God, help that Thursday go very well. I pray, God, that the doctors would make no mistakes and that as they interact with Sean and, and with Eileen and with the rest of the family, God, that they would see clearly a family that loves you and puts you first and recognizes that you are the great and perfect healer. I pray also, God, that as we get into your word right now, Lord, that you would help us to discern the truth and that you would grow us, that we would be challenged every time we pick up the word to see how unholy we are compared to you. Father, I pray that as we read these things that direct us and as we see the example of Christ and everything that he spoke to us through the Old and New Testaments, that you would help us to be firm in what we believe, that we would stand in faith and that we would trust that you are making us into a new creation day by day. We love you, God, and thank you for all these things. We glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so leading up to December 25th, the world around us is inclined to spend more time thinking about that night in Bethlehem when the birth of a special baby sent ripples throughout history. Consider the scene with me as we think about Christ this morning. Mary, who was a young Israelite woman, and Joseph, the man that she was promised to become married to, probably tired already from having traveled a great distance to participate in a census that had commanded uh, Joseph and his family to return to the city of their birth, Bethlehem. Uh, they seek shelter for the night in a city that is jam-packed with travelers. And they find that Mary's time to give birth had come. Now, they had been told by angelic messengers that this baby would make a significant impact, not only on their own people, but on the whole world. His birth would fulfill prophecies that had remained unanswered for hundreds of years and would usher in the kingdom of God. They... They welcomed this important little life into the world and they set their eyes upon this infant who would grow to be their savior. Think about the irony of being in their position to be flawed, 
mortal human parents caring for the promised Messiah who indeed was God in the flesh. The minuscule hand which reached out and wrapped its fingers around Mother Mary's finger was in fact the hand of God that was upholding the universe by the world or word of His power. This little mind which was incapable of ordered, reasonable thought was at the very same time the mind of the omniscient, all-seeing Creator who has perfect understanding of everything that will ever exist. This little mouth, which could not speak a single word, could only manage to make noises and cooing sounds that we adore so much in infants, belonged to the eternal being who spoke and created the universe out of nothing. Nestled into the tender arms of his young mother, Jesus was utterly dependent upon her and Joseph. He seemed at that moment defenseless, harmless, and yet not a single molecule in all existence can escape his authority and his power. While they held Christ, they too in a cosmic sense were nestled within his mighty arms. Well, the wonder of the union of God and man in the birth of Jesus Christ our Lord. The very fabric of space and time must have been stretched to its very limits to accommodate this utterly unique life. Now we, we profess here that every birth is special, every birth is worth celebrating, but this particular birth was like no other birth in the history of life. In that moment, mankind was introduced to God in the flesh. Now, the God we came to worship today is, is a very complex being. The most very basic form in which God exists is itself fundamentally different than the way that we exist. We are beings that have a human nature. God, on the other hand, is a being, one being, who has at the very same time three persons, three natures. He is what we call a trinity. He is triune. Each one of those persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are absolutely united in what they think, and what they desire. They have never been at conflict with one another. They enjoy perfect unity. And yet at the same time, each one of those persons has unique roles and responsibilities that play out in their person. So God is holy. He is unique and different than what we understand. And this is so outside of our common conception that, that we expect it to be difficult to understand who God is. That's why we gather together and we learn about Him diligently. We open our hearts and minds to His Word so that He can tell us who He is. Because from our human perspective, we would struggle and yearn to try to understand such a great and complicated being. But when we focus our attention upon just one of the persons of the Trinity, just on God the Son, we're going to find that there is also great complexity simply in His person in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, God the Son, has always existed. John 1, speaking of Jesus as the living Word of God, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14 clarifies that the Word being spoken of there is indeed Jesus Christ who came and took on flesh to be with us. So Jesus does not belong in the category of created things. He has always been. In fact, John goes on to describe how every single thing that could fit into the category of created things was created by Jesus Christ. There was nothing made that was not made through Jesus. So then we must conclude then, if the word is true, and it is, that Jesus is not a created being. He has always existed. God the Father 
and God the Spirit exist in a different form than we do. We have bodies that are filled with a spirit, but God the Father and God the Spirit are purely spiritual beings. They don't have a material form. This was also true of Jesus, of God the Son. His primary form of existence has always been spiritual. But in order to fulfill the plan of redemption, God the Son added a supplementary aspect to Himself by becoming something more than spiritual. God the Son took on a body, and with it, a true human nature. In doing so, Jesus established a union between what is divine, God, and what is created, man. Theologically, this has become known as the hypostatic union. What do we mean when we sing that God is holy? We mean that God is entirely other. And the hypostatic union describes that strange com combination of man and God that exists only in Jesus Christ our Lord. There is nothing like Him. And we see that to be especially true when we examine the generations of men who have all descended from Adam, each one of which is not like him. Every human being to have descended from the seed of Adam is sinful and fallen and limited. Though God is holy and utterly unique from us, something in God is pleased to love us. God chooses to love us even though we are undeniably less than what he is. He chooses to love His covenant people, even though we are at our very best, a dim reflection of some of the beautiful and praiseworthy things that make God who He is. Despite our flaws, God in His perfect wisdom generously decided to love us. And if you know anything about love, and I hope that you do, you know that the bonds of love compel one to be near the object of that which he or she loves. Because God loves us, He is not content to be remote, to be distant, to be far away from the people that bear His image. But that desire to be near reveals a very real problem. There is a serious hindrance that prevents God, who is holy and unique, who is pure and spotless, who has never sinned, prevents him from being near to the objects of his love. That hindrance, of course, is sin itself. God being holy cannot be near to that which is sinful. Because sin had created a divide between God and man, and since the efforts of man could never bridge that divide, God in love did the unthinkable that he could draw near to us. He came to be near. He took on a human nature. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." We hope the preaching this December will unravel some of the mysteries of the passage I just read to you, that it will bring clarity to the doctrine of the hypostatic union. We'll be taking a break through the month of December from 1 Corinthians to focus on this wonderful aspect of theology. Secondly, we hope that this preaching in the month of December will safeguard us against some of the heretical misunderstandings of who Jesus really is. 
man is prone to try to invent ways of thinking about God. And that is always a mistake. We should let God's revelation of himself to us define how we think about his character and his nature. So we hope that the preaching will safeguard against those errors. And thirdly, we hope that as we learn more about the beautiful complexities of the hypostatic union, that it will amplify our doxology of the Savior. In other words, it will make us want all the more to praise him and to give him the glory that he deserves because truly there is nothing like him in all of creation. Divine and human. It is only at the glorious, mysterious intersection of these two starkly different natures that an acceptable mediator can be found to bridge the gap between man and God that our sin has created. Now, to know Jesus... To understand who he is is of the utmost importance. And that is declared to us by the words of John 17, 3, where Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus, whom you have sent. If we have any hope of eternal life, we need to know Jesus. We need to come to understand who Christ is and what he came to accomplish. This is eternal life that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So let us set our minds to know him. Man being sinful, without exception, needed a savior. And according to God's word, that savior had to be a man. That savior needed a human nature. Why did the Savior need to be a man? I'm going to give you four reasons this morning. The first is this. The Savior needed to be a man because the shedding of blood is necessary for the remission of sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The wages of sin is what? is death. Romans 3.23 declares this to us. And throughout Scripture, when we see references to blood, they are often referred to as life. Blood is like the life that flows through our veins. And since the offense of sin is directed against he who gives life, life is required to bring justice for the offense. Every one of us is breathing here today because God is allowing it to be so. And every one of us is also probably in need of of some confession to God this morning. Every one of us has probably broken his law already before we even got here today. And when we offended someone, when we broke the law, no doubt somebody else was hurt by that. Perhaps we ourselves were hurt by it. But the true party offended when we sin is none other than God himself. Because it is God who declares what is good and what is bad. It is he who sets the law for us. So when we sin, we're not just committing a social error. We are offending the very being who supplies breath to our lungs. A spirit has no blood. God the Father has no blood. God the Spirit has no blood. And if sin can only be taken away through the shedding of blood, there is a material offering that needs to be made in the redemption of a creature that is itself material. The sacrificial system that is laid out in the Mosaic Covenant of the Old Testament makes this very clear. In Leviticus 17, 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. 
for it is the blood that makes atonement by life. Now that sacrificial system was established by God to his special covenant people with which he desired to have a real close relationship. The Israelites were not chosen because they were sinless among the nations. Far be it from that. They were just as sinful as everyone else. It was simply the grace of God that caused God to choose the Israelites to be the nation through whom he would shine his grace and his glory. And so he established among them a rule of conduct, a standard by which they would behave themselves. But then he also, knowing that they would fail that conduct, gave them a system by which they might draw near to him in worship. There needed to be a way for their sins to be covered so that they could draw near and praise him and give him glory. And so certain animals were set aside as clean animals that God would accept as a temporary marker, a sacrifice that would make them in some sense pure enough to come near to worship him. First through the tabernacle and then later on through the temple which replaced the tabernacle, each being a signifying place where the presence of God was believed to dwell. The presence of God is important because God loves us. What does somebody who loves somebody want to do? He wants to be near to them. So he put his dwelling in the midst of them so that they would come near to him. These sacrifices cleanse the participants in a limited and temporary way so that they can continue to represent God in the world as the covenants had laid out and so that they continue to try to be near to their God. But they had to be offered continually because these sacrifices were only signs. They were only shadows of a greater sacrifice that was to come, copies of heavenly things. The tabernacle was a copy of a heavenly thing. If you study the details of the tabernacle, we don't have to get the uh, time to get into it this morning. If you study the layout of the temple and what each of the parts of the temple meant, they were intended to be a reflection of the holy room of, of God in heaven, the place where true worship happens. And so these places were a copy of the heavenly things. And so it was possible to sanctify the people through copies of true sacrifice so that they could come into these copies of heavenly place to give worship and adoration to their God. But actual heavenly things require a greater sacrifice. And that brings us to the second point this morning. Only the blood of a man could redeem the life of a man. Blood is necessary for sin to be atoned for, but not just any blood. For a man to be atoned of his sin, the blood of a man must be shed. So I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be spending quite a bit of time in the book of Hebrews this morning. This book is dedicated to proving that Jesus was in every way the greater fulfillment of the shadows and the types of the Old Testament. And so we're going to look at some passages today that, that specifically teach us how Christ is the fulfillment of all the shadows that previously had pointed towards the real sacrifice that only could be realized in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1, God's word says, For since the law has but a shadow, there's that word again, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year, offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You see, what's being described here is 
the writer of Hebrews is pointing out the deficiencies in the Old Testament covenantal sacrifice system. And that's not because God failed to give a perfect system. It's because the Old Covenant had a a purpose, a specific reason for being in existence. It pointed forward to the perfect sacrifice of Christ. But he helps the people to understand here, look, if a bull could take away our sin, then we would sin no more. We would not be caught in this endless cycle of needing another sacrifice that would once again take away the sins that we had fallen back into. There needs to be something greater than these goats, something greater than these sheep, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away man's true sin. These shadows could not make perfect what the later sacrifice would indeed make perfect. Verse 5 goes on to say, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Do you see what this is signifying? God's true desire was not for goats and bulls and the blood of these animal offerings. That was not what he truly desired. Those served as simply a placeholder, as a sign pointing forward to what Christ really desired, which was the full atonement of the heart, which could only be done by the sacrifice of a man. It was man, though blessed with the honor of bearing God's image, who responded to that honor, not with worship, but with rebellion. Sin was invited into God's pure creation by Adam, and therefore man deserves to die. That is why it says, a body you have prepared for me. Christ knew that a perfect man did not exist on the planet. And so he determined to offer himself to come and take on a human nature that he would acquire blood, that he would acquire a human form so that he himself could experience death on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 8 through 10 says, When when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken, taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. And then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The whole of creation is indeed affected by this sin. But man is the one who brought this sin into creation. Man is the one who is guilty of tainting the world with disobedience because God had given man a degree of dominion over all that he had created. So when man falls, all that is under his dominion is affected by the reverberation of that rebellion. The guilty party who initiated sin itself and allowed it to corrupt what God had charged him to protect was none other than man. And since man sinned, the penalty had to be the death of a man. Jesus was willing to fulfill those requirements. Here's the the issue, though. God, apart from a human nature, cannot die. God in the form of spirit cannot pay the price for our sin because the cost of sin is death and God in spiritual form cannot die. That is why Jesus is quoted as saying here, a body you have prepared for me so that he could enter a body and take on a human nature that would coexist with his divine nature so that he could go to the cross and die and pay the penalty for our sin. The death of another non-human creature such as a sheep or a bull would teach us about the weight of sin 
but could not itself be a satisfactory legal substitute for what man had done to offend God. I was flying uh, on southwest to Arkansas a couple of Christmases ago. My cousin, sadly, had passed away of a heart attack, and it was very, very important that I get back to be there for the services to honor his life. He was a, he was a, a wonderful young man. He loved the Lord, a great evangelist at heart. And so I was very determined to get back there to minister to my family. And speaking with the representatives uh, of the airlines, I, I was talking with them about my flight, and there was talk of my flight being canceled. Now, if you've ever had a flight canceled, you know how harrowing that can be, especially when you're just a day away from, from getting on the plane. And they said, well, we can, we can give you another flight later, uh, but this one will be canceled. And so technically, you would think that one flight equals another flight, right? Was I satisfied with that? No, because that later flight would have put me in Arkansas after the funeral services for my cousin. That was not satisfactory because that flight would not have satisfied my need to be with my family. That's the whole reason why I was trying to fly. It would, have, would not have been an equivalent for the flight that I was being canceled to get a flight that would get me there later. It wasn't going to work. And in the same way, when Jesus is offended by man to offer up a goat and say, here's the life and blood of a goat, it's not satisfactory for him. The goat was not the one who sinned against him. The goat was not the life that bears the image of God. It had to be the life and the death of a man. Every lamb, bull, goat, and dove that was sacrificed in the Old Testament system all pointed forward to one greater sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So in order for Jesus to take on the role and responsibility of Redeemer, a humbling had to occur that would bring a certain degree of vulnerability to God. Jesus willingly accepted the limitations of humanity. By taking on a human body, he had to deal with all the same things that you and I have to deal with in our limitations. He had to experience a progressive maturity. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So as a child, Jesus had to learn from Mary and Joseph. He had to learn from the Word of God. He had to listen and memorize Scripture. He had to grow in wisdom and stature. He had to be dependent upon others. He couldn't do all things for himself, Luke 2.7. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And for years, he was dependent upon them to supply food for him, to give him shelter, to care for him when his body fell sick. And there is no doubt that his body probably fell sick in the time that he was here on earth. Because we know that he had to eat. We know that he had to drink. We know that he had to sleep. These are all things that a real human has to deal with. And so the scriptures declare to us successfully that all of those things were things that Christ had to contend with in his time on earth. He had to deal with finitude. He had to become finite in some way. Jesus 11 talks about how Jesus' dear friend Lazarus was ill. And so Lazarus' sisters went and found Jesus and said, you must return to heal Lazarus. We need you to be where he is at. And Jesus tarried for a little while and then went back to be with Lazarus. And by the time he got there, Lazarus had died. Jesus could only be in one place at a time in his human nature, just like you and I can only be in one place at a time. When the other travelers were out in the middle of the lake on the boat and he had stayed behind to pray, 
Jesus didn't just teleport to the boat. Jesus wasn't also at the boat. He had to walk across the water to get to them. Now, he exercised a little bit of God's power to do that. I could not walk across the water to get to a boat. But Jesus was limited in that he could only be at one place at one time. So we need to think about the Advent as the first sacrifice that Jesus made. It was in no way robbery for Christ to be equal with God, and yet he was willing to come down to our level, to condescend to the limits of humanity and to forgo the benefits and blessings of the divine nature that he retained even though he took onto himself another human nature. And so Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and was humbly born in the likeness of men. For sin to be properly atoned for, a man had to suffer. To free us from that just penalty, Jesus became man. Now there's another detail worth pointing out here. This is the third point of our sermon this morning. The offering given to atone for the sins of man had to be not just a man, but a participant in the covenant of the law. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says that, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Now the sacrifice had to be a participant in the covenant that establishes responsibility and obligation. And many people think immediately of the Mosaic covenant when they think about the covenant of the law. But the covenant of the law is actually older than the Mosaic covenant. Did not Adam receive a covenant of law when he was in the garden? When he had yet to sin and break in God, broke any of God's commands, he was given the command, simply do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because Adam was not willing to follow that one simple mandate, because he ate from that tree, the covenant of law was broken there in Genesis chapter 3. And every man who has come from the loins of Adam, who descends from him in a genetic sense, has inherited that same nature, that inherent propensity to sin against the Lord God and the guilt of the decision that our federal head Adam made. The law of Moses is not the only law. Christ was born through Mary, a human being, to fulfill what was broken in the original covenant of law. But Adam was not the only violator. Every man who would fall had the same heart of rebellion, and every covenant that God establishes with man proved man's inability to keep covenant with him. And so, nothing less than men could pay the penalty of that error. Any substitute that could offer <clears throat> to suffer in our place could himself owe no debt to God. There was a need for Jesus to fulfill the law. He had, had he not done that, he could not be a substitute for us. That's why Jesus didn't get sent to earth as a full-grown man, go right to Calvary, die in our place on the cross, and rise on the third day. He was sent as a humble baby. Why? Because Jesus not only paid the penalty for our sin, he also lived out every positive command of law that you and I should be living out. He loved his neighbor perfectly. He obeyed the words of God the Father. He trusted in the Spirit. He walked in truth. Jesus fulfilled the law for us. And then he took care of our breaking of the law on our behalf. Let us not forget the reason that God chose to redeem his elect in the first place. By saving sinners, God is expressing his great love for us. 
in saving sinners, God is making them new so that they can be near to him. And so our fourth point today returns our attention to that reality. God the Son had to become a man so that we could understand his love and have confidence that our Redeemer knows us. Just as a loving parent is not above getting down to the level of his child, getting on his or her hands and knees to play with that child and to speak in a very basic language that that child will understand and to joke in the, in the, in the seemingly foolish and childish ways of a child so that that child will know that they are loved and that they are important enough to that parent that that parent is willing to even do what is indistinguished to get down with, and undignified to get down with them on their level. And that is essentially what Christ has done for us in taking on flesh. He has come to our level because we did not have the power or ability to get to his. It was beyond us. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every aspect or every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The humanity of Christ also makes him this incredibly powerful example for us that we might follow. We don't have to think too abstractly. We simply need to look at the life of Christ and say, there is perfection in the flesh. That is how man is supposed to live. And then do what Christ did. Follow in his steps and listen to his commands. John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 1 Peter 2, 21, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you, what? An example, so that you might follow in his steps. You will no doubt have a number Godly examples come and go in your life. I've had several here at this church, men and women that I looked up to, men and women whose obedience to Christ was exemplary to me, but none will serve as a greater role model than Christ himself. Your best examples will be the people you follow because they are following Jesus well. So the Savior had to be a man, but not just any man. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A failure to understand the important doctrine of the hypostatic union is liable to lead to so many different heresies. Jesus Christ is the only man who was able to go to the cross at Calvary. And we're going to get into greater depth in that next week when we look at why the Savior had to be not just man, but also at the same time, God. But before we conclude today, I want to point out one of the failures that can spring from an improper understanding of this uniting of the natures of God's divinity and his humanity. It is called docetism. The docetism heresy is that Jesus was God, but Jesus was not really man. Docetism comes from the Greek word dokane, which means to seem as though or to appear like. And so one who would follow a heresy that 
falls into the category of docetism, would say that Jesus was truly God, that it was, he was a divine being who had always lived, that he was perfect, that he was untainted by sin. But they would argue that it would be impossible for that kind of a perfect God, that kind of a being, to take on the limited flesh of a human being. As most heresies do, docetism then affirms some true things that the scripture declares while denying others. The idea of God, high and holy, set apart, defiling himself by taking on the limits of a material form were too much for them to embrace. Docetism took an early form in the second century as a group called the Ebionites. It was heavily influenced by Gnostic thought, which was a philosophy that gained great prominence and popularity in the time. And they tried to popularize this view that God only appeared to be a man, that he was in some ways like a spectral or a ghost, but that he didn't actually have flesh. These individuals were quickly confronted by the church fathers, but bad heresies are hard to snuff out. And a couple hundred years later, in the fourth century, a group called the Arians posed a serious threat to the integrity of theology and doctrine. The stance is spurned on by a false dichotomy that presents the idea that man is essentially two parts, flesh and spirit, and that the fleshly part is in all ways corrupt and evil, while the spiritual part is in all ways pure and good. That was what the Romans were thinking and teaching and philosophy in those times, and it began to bleed its way into the church. That's why we have to constantly keep our eyes on the scripture to make sure that our society doesn't teach us how to worship God in the wrong ways. And so the Arians made great inroads into corrupting those in the church to believe this wrong thing about Jesus. Thankfully, the Lord God cannot be overcome by bad doctrine. There were stands made. Uh, there were mighty men of God filled with the Spirit who were able to argue from Scripture that to think of Christ as anything less than true humanity would be to strip Him of His ability to give His life for us on the cross. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul the Apostle will make an impassioned case for the importance of Jesus' physical resurrection, insisting that if He did not physically rise from the dead, then all the hope of the Christians would have been for nothing. That Christians would in fact have been the most people to be pitied in the world if Christ did not physically die and physically rise from the grave. Scripture therefore testifies that hundreds of people saw Christ rise from the, from the grave, that they, he appeared to them after his death, burial, and resurrection. The disciples actually shared a meal with the risen physical Jesus, and that the disciple Thomas reached out and put his own hands into the holes in Christ's hands and the holes in his side. Luke 24, 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Docetism and the various false teachings that have sprung from that same idea would have believed that Jesus appeared to live the life of man but was never tainted with an actual physical human body. Now if that claim were true, Jesus could not have been authentically human. And our example of holiness would have been in some ways unraveled. If Jesus were only divine... How does he serve as a good example to us? He would be doing what only God can do, not what man can do. But the fact that Christ took on a true human nature shows that we can walk in the goodness of God if we do it the way Christ did it, by seeking the Lord in prayer every day, by clinging to his word and trusting him in faith in all things and putting him first before ourselves. But what else could Jesus not have done if he lacked a body? Jesus could not have offered his blood for us as an atonement for our sin. 
the power of the sacrament of communion would be utterly stripped away. In just a few moments, we're going to recognize the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, which Jesus commanded us to do regularly in worship to him. And these elements would be meaningless if Christ was nothing more than the image of a human being, if he had not actually condescended to be with us. And so we think of the words of 2 John 7, which says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So let us never fall into that false teaching that would say that Christ is truly divine, but is not truly human. The union of these two great natures is a complex thing, and we will look at that in great detail, the union of these two natures, in the third week of December. But for today, let us be satisfied in seeing that the Scripture declares to us Jesus met this first requirement. Jesus was authentically human. That was not the only one. Any Savior who hoped to redeem a world full of people afflicted by sin would need to be more than just a man. He would need to be God as well. And that's what we will look at next week when we examine why the Savior had to be divine.